0: Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling as always is my friend and co-host Adam.
1: Hey, uh, it's good to be back. I guess our listeners don't know this. It will it'll seem seamless to them as they're listening, but we've yes. had a little gap in our recording schedule, so getting back into this show after a couple weeks, and uh, it's, yeah. it's great. I missed it. I missed watching it because it's just got great characters. It, it's got me
0: hooked. It's definitely been a hot minute since we talked, but as you said yeah. to the listeners, it will feel like only a few days as they will be <laughs> <laughs> dropping these episodes or... Right. A few hours since they're probably going to binge these episodes. You yeah. could listen to them back to back once they're all out, just like the <laughs> <Right>. show. Exactly. <laughs> do whatever you want. This is yeah. you do you audience <laughs> listeners or whoever it is out there, the four people listening. Anyway, so we're in episode six of season one of Halt and Catch Fire entitled Landfall. I got to tell you, I'd forgotten about this episode. This is, oh. it's not a forgetful episode, but I remembered why this wasn't something that came to mind because it felt very different from everything that's come before it, I think that's good in some ways. I think that for what it does, it works. I do have a few reservations about it, some questions maybe you can help answer. But for the most part, I thought this was up there. Not one of the better episodes, but still a, a pretty solid entry for this first season.
1: Yeah, it's, it's totally a little different. And that might have something to do with the, the team creatively behind it. It's directed by, uh, I think her name is Larissa Kondraki. I looked her up. I wasn't familiar with her name, but she directed a film called The Whistleblower starring Rachel Weisz. It's a 2011 film. And uh, she did one this is one of two episodes of of this series that she directed, but she's also directed a lot of peak TV over the years like the show The Americans, Better Call Saul, The Walking Dead, so she's clearly handled a lot of uh, darker material, uh, which kind of makes sense for this episode. There's some dark moments in this sure. and it's and it's written by zach whedon who is uh joss whedon's half brother joss whedon of course the director of the first avengers well first and second avengers sort of somewhat canceled now i think yeah, a little <laughs> but, bit just a bit <laughs> but but not that he didn't write it uh, it's his half brother so zach i'm for all i know is an uncanceled individual <laughs> so we can mention his name yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were
0: half Avengers in the show. I think maybe if I didn't yeah. see any, maybe, maybe you saw some oh, bad jokes. I, I didn't see any, but <laughs> I didn't. Either. I'm always looking. <laughs> <laughs> look for Zach Whedon. Look for half Avengers if you can. Yeah. <laughs> I was reminded a lot in this particular one. I don't know if this is a, a filmmaking device or an approach, but I've seen this in an episode of the West Wing where everybody's isolated, and they're kind of paired together. Some are paired, some are not. And they were all kind of locked in certain sections of the West Wing, but it was unlikely pairings. And it sort of helped move these characters who were not connected to other characters, push their relationships forward so that the writers could say, okay, cool. Now we've got a reason to put character A with character B for a future subplot. I don't know that that was the point of this, but the approach is really interesting because it helps isolate relationships that you wouldn't normally logically put together. For instance, Donna and Joe, theirs is probably the most obvious. And I think that having episodes like this allow us to really kind of squeeze a little bit more of the character development out of individuals next to other characters that wouldn't necessarily be in contact with them on a regular basis because Donna doesn't work for Cardiff Electric.
1: No, you're right. I think it's helpful because you're basically putting these characters in situations that they haven't been in before with people that they don't interact with as often. So that brings out a different side of their personality or who they are. And clearly, I think we're seeing a slightly different side to Joe in this episode as a result of that pairing. And also like with Boz and Cameron, they also have their pairing. This is, again, all due to the fact that there's essentially a hurricane pounding Texas and so this forces these characters to essentially hunker down and it it's sort of a technique to force these people to continue to be together and talk together when they would otherwise probably find an excuse to get out of that situation because yeah. it's just awkward and uncomfortable. I liked it though. I enjoyed this episode. Maybe I I'm just happy to be back watching the show again after a little downtime, but I really enjoyed seeing where these characters are going. And I'm starting to see, starting to predict where it's all going. But I don't know. Until we actually get there, we'll find out if my uh, predictions are correct.
0: Well, let's start building tomorrow today instead of tomorrow, since we're talking about the episode. The cold open gets us in Gordon's office. And what we realize is a dream state is uh, him looking at a working motherboard. And he sees a flower. And this is really interesting. He Can't get to it. And then he's awakened by a jolt, I guess by being electrocuted. The board is live and he doesn't have his little like strip or magnet or whatever on there and well, grounding, sort of a, yeah. Yeah. Sort of an interesting moment with him. Um I think he actually does he actually fall out of his chair <laughs> like where he like yeah, falls he, over or something.
1: Yeah a somewhat violent reaction <laughs> to the mm-hmm. uh to the to the shock. Not just the shock, but I think also to whatever he was dreaming about. He was clearly he clearly fell into a much deeper state of REM sleep if he was having a dream at this point as you know we mm-hmm. know like a lot of times if you just take like a little power nap you don't get into a deep sleep you don't really dream You're mm-hmm. just kind of recharging a little bit and you know he's working all nighters constantly mm-hmm. so yeah I mean I think his body is just telling him sleep I don't care where you are you need to actually <laughs> sleep and get rest. So yeah, he's having a very odd dream. I wasn't quite sure what that flower was supposed to represent in this episode. It never went anywhere else. Maybe future episodes it will. I was thinking maybe it's just, you know, the concept of rebirth, you know, that this, Mm -hmm. the computer is the flower. He's helping something to grow, to create something, to bring life to something. And, but that he, you know, can't quite get to it. Can't quite achieve it. I, you know, I'm, kind of grasping at straws because they didn't give you much more after this. They just they kind really of didn't. moved right on to the, <laughs> to the next scene.
0: Yeah. And I will say this, since it's a dream about a computer, would it be RAM sleep and not RAM sleep? Ah,
1: very okay. good. Don't your dad joke. That's what a computer BMW. does when it dreams of electric sheep. <laughs> <laughs> or when that, an Android think. dreams. <laughs> dreams <of electric> <laughs> it's in RAM sleep mode. This is RAM
0: sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile in Joe's apartment, Cameron's having some fun loving on him. And I think we determined that they were still having a relationship, an off and on relationship. And at one point, I think in the season I was like, Oh, I didn't realize that they were still together physically, but apparently that is the case. It's an arrangement. Arrangement. I, okay. Yeah, Oops. I don't think <laughs> not a relationship. I wouldn't say
1: they're really I don't think they're in any kind of what either of them would deem as a relationship whether it's romantic or or love or otherwise, I think it's just like an extension of their working relationship.
0: But I think uh, you're right. And this conversation really leans into that idea. Cameron's asking about Joe's scars and he tells her two stories that to me were convincing the way that he tells (laughs) them, but she completely sees through and she's like, why are you lying? And Joe kind of gets a little miffed. He's like, what is this? And he's referring to their arrangement. He said, when did this become that? This idea of us talking about our dirty little secrets and past lives. And Cameron says this amazing set of dialogue. She says, your whole thing, it attracts people, but it won't keep them around. Authenticity is what inspires people. If you want to lead people, you have to show them who you really are. Otherwise, you're just a thousand dollar suit with nothing inside. And I don't quite know how he reacts to it because the scene sort of ends that way. Like, I think he's sort of like, whatever. But I think it's reinforced a couple of scenes later with regard to kind of how he sees himself because I think she has an effect on him in this moment that he takes it to heart to an extent.
1: Yeah, and I just don't know how he comes up with these kind of fully formed stories so quickly, like on the fly. Like, it's almost like lying is second nature to him at this point in yeah. his life. And yeah. it's, I kind of feel sad for him because he's so used to making things up, to not letting somebody in that he can actually come up with this kind of ridiculous but believable story without even pausing to think about it. Unless he's kind of made these stories up in advance for different situations, that's possible. But it kind of feels like he's just sort of, oh, well, yeah. So it When I was a kid, I was at my friend's house, you know, it's like, he just seems like he has, he even has names for the people already picked out. It's so I don't think he picks out the
0: names. It is a skill. And I don't think he necessarily has names picked out. I think he has childhood friends. I think some of this stuff comes from truth, but he's probably said it so many times. He actually has a catalog of lies to explain some of this stuff. Now to contrast that, when would he need to explain his scars? Like when is he going to have his shirt off at IBM? That's right. the bigger question I have. So it's more for any of his
1: previous romantic encounters or relationships that he's been in. Maybe he's built up this wall because he knows those questions will come up. Maybe he's, yes he has a series of
0: lies to pick from. And I think it speaks to the fact that he is prepared to know what kinds of relationships or arrangements he's going to have. It speaks to the fact that he is not a long-term relationship guy. He is about getting what he needs right now, giving the woman or in some cases the man uh, what they need (laughs) right right there. I mean, I understand that. I think that probably fuels or reinforces his ability to sell, but it also creates this almost ironic vulnerability because Cameron as she has done so many times so far this season she is calling him out on his crap and I think when she says that pivotal set of lines I think something happens where he's not a changed man but I think it starts to trigger something in him yeah and it's fascinating how it plays out so then we're moving into Gordon's house he's coming home drunk and smelling of beer because he's been working an all-nighter
1: it's a it's a fun scene, and they discuss in this half sleep state the Cabbage Patch Kids, which were a big part mm-hmm. of being kids in the '80s. Boys and girls loved Cabbage Patch. My uh, sister wanted one desperately, and I think it was actually not. So this was, I guess, the 1983 release of the Cabbage Patch dolls, but they continued to be like the dominant holiday, you know, Christmas time gift for several. Mm-hmm years 83 84 probably into 85 i think it was 84 christmas of 84 my sister wanted one more than anything and it was the same christmas that the dinobots came out for transformers so i remember this very distinctly Yeah. yeah they were the two hot items so for the girls it was the cabbage patch kids and for the boys it was you know transformers but specifically the dinobots and my brother and i both wanted dinobots and my sister wanted a cabbage patch doll and I remember going with my mom looking for Cabbage Patch dolls. We drove all over Central Pennsylvania to different malls and department stores to try to find her one. And I just remember seeing Dinobots on the shelf and thinking, "Oh, I want them." And they were they were available, but you know, I wasn't going to get one right then and there. I had to wait for Christmas. Anyway, I, I did get one, and my brother oh, good, got one. Good. And, I was going to ask. Uh, yeah, uh, Santa brought. <laughs> did it. your sister get I the just, Cabbage Patch doll? she She did somewhere somehow i don't even remember because i don't think when i would go with my mom i don't think i don't recall her actually finding one during those those hunts that we went on Mm -hmm. but i was just with her yeah somehow santa came through i don't know if it if my mom had to throw a brick through a window at a store like in this episode which we'll get to but uh yeah, yeah i got i think i got slag he was one of the uh dinobots he was like the kind of the one with the you know the pointy spikes on his back and then my brother got Grimlock which I kind of wanted more but everybody wanted Grimlock yeah
0: me Grimlock <laughs> yeah just I love that <laughs> yeah. anyway it's, very... it's
1: just I like it because it brought back memories I haven't thought about those childhood memories in many many years and this episode made me think of it and it it also mm-hmm. I think you mentioned this offline that this episode is somewhat reminiscent of the The uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, Jingle All the Way. Yeah, uh, this whole uh, subplot is Jingle All the Way. It really is. (laughs) But instead of Turbo Man from that movie, it's Turbo Time. (laughs) It's Turbo Time. uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's weird. That movie is not great, but I I find myself watching it many Christmases because it's just sort of like Home Alone. It just feels like
0: it's the the season for it. And Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a warm blanket anyway. Yeah, it's always on my watch list. And yeah. It's one that if I'm not really sitting down intentionally to watch it, like it's not like all right. right Tuesday night let's watch Jingle All the Way. I'll have it on probably in the background when I'm working, but I'll have it on in the in the corner. And I actually discovered that there are two versions: there's the theatrical version, and then there's the extended version that has some extra hijinks in it, which I thought was kind of fun. Interesting. I don't know if I've seen that one. That might it be... changes a couple of scenes a little bit. Nothing that's yeah. going to like monumentally change the plot. I mean everything still happens the way it happens, but it adds a little bit more zaniness to it, which is kind of cool.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. It's like you said, it's good enough for doing some laundry. You just want to have a Christmas movie on in the background. It's that kind of movie, but it's certainly not
0: as good as some of the other holiday classics out there. The next day we're in Joe's apartment and this is almost a mirror image of either the last episode or a couple of episodes ago where he's looking at his wardrobe, figuring out what to wear but the attitude is a little different. It's a little bit less optimistic. I think he's probably still thinking about what Cameron said the night before. And he goes to the car wash. Apparently, that's what he does or what he did particularly that day. I love that the car wash guy gives him a rain check because he knows it's going to storm. Like, he washes his car and then gives him a rain check. So, good on you. Customer service with a smile. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming back to that if I, if I could. I'm going back to 1983 to get my car washed by that guy because he's awesome. <laughs> and then... Joe changes his look he sees the guy on the billboard without the jacket and the shirt kind of open showing off the scarred collar or the non-scarred collar for the guy on the billboard but he's like you know what let's try this and he loses the tie and the jacket and I asked myself a question is this the beginning of him trying to be authentic like is this the real Joe is this a part of the real Joe where he's a little bit more relaxed or is he just kind of changing his looks to be hip because that's the look that the 80s are turning into. I, I didn't really know, but I thought it might have been more of a level of authenticity that he was trying to get, or maybe even connecting with the younger kids, not being a suit. I don't know. I just
1: took it more of from a point of view that he's just a very vain individual, that he's constantly thinking about how he looks and how he appears. And like you said, maybe he just feels that the suit and tie is to IBM, and if he wants to connect with a new generation, or if he wants to connect with the potential market for his new computer, maybe he has to be a little more relaxed, but he's still just yeah. very focused on how he looks. What clothes is he wearing? He has that sort of surface uh, focus in him. Kind of like uh, Cam says, he's wearing a $1,000 suit, but there's nothing inside. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how he comes off here. You know, he's just, all he cares about is what people think of him.
0: Before the scene ends, I, I want to throw some love to the music. I think we're six episodes in and we haven't really talked about the music of, uh, I think it's Paul Haslinger who mm-hmm. does all the music for Halt and Catch Fire. I queued up the soundtrack about a week ago just to kind of get the whole flavor. And it's very much reminiscent. I say it's reminiscent. Stranger Things is very much in the same vein as this, that kind of eighty synth. Yeah. But I think... It's used differently in this. I love what he's doing here, and I'm, I'm glad that we've got him. I think he does the music for all four seasons, and so it'll be interesting to see if there are themes that sort of reappear, reoccur, like, much like in Stranger Things where we have themes of certain characters. I don't know that we have any of that yet, but at the very least, I, remember, I, I recall that this episode specifically I thought was especially interesting with, uh, with Paul Singer's music.
1: Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Just great. A little more synth pop almost, but you know, but yes, it it definitely like all good music can do for film or television. It's a character and it helps to define the time period that we're in and make you feel like this is a world that you want to be a part of, that you want to live in. And it's just yeah, it's it's really good.
0: So we go to Cameron's house. I put a question mark here because I think she has a place to live now, which is the yeah. first time that we're seeing this. So good on her for finding a place that's not in the basement. With, with <laughs> some roommates. Yeah. With some roommates. Yeah. I mean, she, she is supported by and with Yo-Yo and some other dude. I don't know that he ever has a name, but he's some kind of like... Like, band guy, not like, yeah, I said, band, uh, like, tuba player, but like a, somebody like whose amp caught on
1: fire at his show the previous night. And he said that was probably the best part of the show. So clearly, oh that's, gosh, well, that, <laughs> that speaks <laughs> to that's his talent. How level. good he is. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> we find out that Yo Yo has made a modified version of Adventure for her. And he says, It's, quote, some stupid thing I just did for fun. As I see what he created later on, I thought, I wish I could create some stupid thing like that for fun that's that cool. It reminds me a lot of seeing videos of people modding the game GTA five with, like, water slides and just crazy stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm still just kind of enamored by this whole open world stuff. And you guys are creating, like, <laughs> water slides in right. the sky and Iron Man <laughs> and stuff like that. So good on you, developers, for creating mods for all these things. I'm just
1: and, jealous well, that people have time for- to create these stupid things for fun i i don't know i don't have any time and this in particular what he does here and we find out more later what it is exactly it clearly was a lot of work it wasn't just some stupid thing it was a tremendous effort i mean not saying it for him it probably wasn't hard but it took a lot of time it kind of makes me wonder if he was kind of doing it as a I don't know. Does he like Cam? Is Mm -hmm. he kind of trying to impress her a little bit? Kind of say, "Look what I did. It's really cool, right?" You know. And I don't know.
0: We'll see. It's a labor of love. It's a labor of love. Does he like her, or does he like like her? Does he like like her? (laughs) Like the episode then takes us to the Cardiff boardroom. And I didn't notice the comfiness of the office chairs in here. Those are really nice. I kind of want those in our office. Yeah, those
1: kind of brownish beige. Mm -hmm. But but they're they're like really thick, padded, unlike the kind of more modern uh, like Herman Miller Aeron chairs that are very common in like in (laughs) corporate conference rooms these days. Yeah, these are are like big, soft, cushioned.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So good, man. Yeah, and the initial shot here is so great because there's such a divided contrast, you know, left and right of the engineers and programmers or the yep. suits and the casuals, the hardware and software. Very intentional. I really believe that. And at the middle of this is Joe McMillan with his sleeves pulled up, his shirt a little bit open, and I think this is really cool because it's a great balance of both sides of the room. You've got the suits. I'm going to call them the suits because literally everybody is in a suit. Maybe they're a pantsuit if you're a woman. An right. actual suit. Gordon is rocking his regular, like whatever Short it is, like shirt his, and tie. Yeah, or whatever yeah, he does, the yeah. the Dwight Schrute look. Yeah, <laughs> before before Dwight Schrute, and and then on the opposite side, you've got Cameron and her gang who are all in t shirts and you know strung right. out on on Red Bull. Well, not Red Bull, but maybe orange <laughs> soda or whatever the energy drink of choice was back then. Right, and it's so cool to see him in the middle, sort of balancing that with his look. Yeah,
1: he straddles that line. I think he's mm-hmm. a little of both, definitely. He's got the the suit side of him, but he's also somebody that understands the engineering and programming side as well to a certain certain point, enough to talk to them. We talked about that early on, how he's kind of that guy that is smart enough to be able to talk and communicate with both sides of the room. And that's kind of literally what he's doing here. And he even quotes Henry Ford in
0: doing it. And then he gives that speech and reveals the beginning of a working prototype. And before he pushes the button... Everyone stops and starts cheering for do Bo- no, stop but They start cheering for Boz. Like like just like, Boz, 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 Boz. And Joe's reaction is priceless. It's like, has the leadership just shifted? Have I lost power? I think Lee Pace is so great in this moment because it's like his face just goes from like destitute to like, okay, okay, I can make this work. I can make this work. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's get Boz up here, you know, because I, I got to save face. I just love how he responds to this.
1: Yeah. I think it was really kind of sweet. It was unexpected because obviously they've played Boz off to be kind of not the brightest bulb, you know, and somebody that's kind of old school. who doesn't really get what's going on, but he's clearly been trying as we've learned uh, to understand coding a little bit and figure out what they're really trying to do here. And it seems like the team has kind of rallied around him a little bit and they're all working together now. and that kind of idea that, you know, either they all win or they all fail. And that's mm-hmm. how they're gonna succeed, is they can't be in fighting anymore. They have to all be in this together. And it yeah. it was kind of nice. I kind of liked that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and it was accented after they successfully turned it on. You know, John's speech obviously is different from very different right. from Joe's. <laughs> very much a a good old boy kind of just grassroots approach. Yeah. And then after the unveiling. Joe and Gordon seem to shake hands and make amends. Gordon, I, I guess we find out prematurely invites him over for dinner. Right. <laughs> I want you to see more than my garage. Right. And uh, that, that's, that's a, a series of things in motion. But before the scene ends, Cameron goes up to the prototype and she doesn't seem impressed with it. And I, I, I'd forgotten that she's the software that she right. really hasn't mm-hmm. seen this hardware in place as it stands. And so she's kind of, doing her little thing. I don't remember what she says specifically, but clearly she ends by saying, is this all there is? Like, is this it? And right. wow, what a what a punch in the gut. If any of those hardware guys had heard that, they'd probably slap her in the face because that's really insulting. I mean, the fact is they busted their butts to get to this point. And she's like, really? Is that all you got? And from her point of
1: view, she's not really concerned about the hardware. That's kind of like the shell, you know, for her code, you know, all she's thinking about is, this is all I made is just this, you know, mm-hmm. this interface, this, this is it. Like she's not thinking about the fact that, wow, this is so, this is the smallest computer taking up the least amount of space that anyone's ever created. I think she's just focused on her own contribution and whether or not she did enough to make this special, to make this unique. And as we learn, she, she has an idea of how she can do something more to make it better. There's also an interesting confrontation between her and Joe here where she kind of just she says at one point oh my god you're so lifelike like he's just not you know a human being at this point you know he's yeah he's just like a, a robot almost he's not behaving like an emotional person he's just behaving very he's all business that they have a business relationship it's and that's it there's nothing more there and because obviously they had a, a bit of a, a falling out as we mentioned earlier when they were
0: uh, in bed together. Yeah, no more sex. That's what he's yeah. saying. No more sex, and it's just business. <laughs> and yep. I, I think it, that's, it's good banter between them, which has been the case all season. You can tell he feels hurt, or he's mm-hmm. showing that hurt and trying to hide that emotion, which is really just reinforcing what she said the night before, that you're just a suit. You have no emotion. You have no connection with people. And you know he's just like, whatever. But that sends her to the basement where... I think she's, you know, kind of reeling from that disappointment. She boots up the modded version of Adventure, and as you mentioned, she gets this idea as she starts playing. She sees that it's been customized for her. She looks at the stuffed animal and then just gets that idea. And we're like, "What is she gonna say? What's gonna yeah, happen?" Yeah. And we don't get, to, we don't have to find out here in a couple of scenes. So yeah, stay with us, right? But there was a great, <laughs>
1: great shot that they use several times like from inside the display looking out, which I loved where you see the like inverted text on the Mm -hmm. computer screen that she's reading. It's almost like she's being watched by the computer or, or if somebody is watching her, you know, like through the computer as if there was a camera (laughs) spying on her. It's just a really inventive shot. And I like that. I like when directors and DPs Mm -hmm. come up with something a little different, you know? Yeah. Clearly that was a, You know, a post production effect that they had to do. They uh, they weren't actually sticking a camera inside the monitor. (laughs) But it's nevertheless, it was a fun point of view to kind of see her reaction to the game from essentially from the screen's point of view.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, because I think it reinforces what she tries to sort of sell later in the scene, which is this idea of a computer having a life, a computer having a soul maybe the beginnings of AI that she's... Right,
1: that you can connect and, with and, it as more than yes, just
0: hardware. Yeah. Exactly. And this is very consistent with her in the first episode where she talks about how computers will be connected across a, a, an entire network and they'll be able to talk to each other. And right. I don't think that she was... When she says stuff like that, she was thinking just that they'd be able to connect, that they would really be able to share information and learn. But she never says anything about the fact that they will be like... <laughs> sentient and that they will become like cyberdine right. and start taking over, you know, the world right. and say things like, I'll be back. Right. She comes back up and she talks to Gordon who's celebrating like their accomplishment as he should. I mean, this is a big deal for them. Yeah. And she wants to give the OS a personality and request 384 K of Ram.
1: Wow. That's and I'm so like,
0: much. that's, <laughs> insanely small for today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, apparently, it was huge, as our former president would say huge. Yeah. I mean, K. It's not even, it's not,
1: it's like not even one megabyte. It's it, to think about, you really have to have lived through this period of time when, you know, there were. And beyond, you know, even in the 90s when you had zip drives and, you know, which were like this incredible advancement, like you could you know, transport so much data on a zip drive compared to a floppy mm-hmm. disk. And, and like now it's like it was nothing, you know, so we're, yeah. it's just amazing how far we've come.
0: Yeah, I, I take movies that I've ripped that I need to watch mm-hmm. elsewhere and I'll throw them onto a jump drive and they're averaging one gig a piece, like yeah. one gig of data. Right, And to think that 384 additional K of RAM would just kill the project is just... I can't get my head around <laughs> right. that. And I just yeah. have to trust that that was the case. But the concept behind it is still valid today. This idea of how much can we put on a piece of hardware that's going to max it out. That's why we talk about overclocking and how do you get your processor to go faster and how do you get to have a bunch of programs open at the same time. When Gordon refuses... Cameron pushes back saying it, quote, needs a soul, something people can fall in love with. And I want to make an observation about this conversation between between her and Gordon, this concept about defining what done is. In
1: the mm-hmm. world of
0: design and the world of project management, it's so crucial to be able to be satisfied based on a requirement, whether it be your own or from a company or a client or a customer you've got to know what done is. You've got to be able to define that. Otherwise you're gonna continue to tweak and tweak and tweak until you actually ruin potentially the product because you've now over designed, which has been the case in some places, you overthink instead of meeting a customer requirement, you've now thought you could impress the customer by giving something they think they want when they actually didn't want it in the first place. And I think that this conversation between Gordon and Cameron is absolutely valid. He even tells her, at some point, you have to stop changing things. You have to be happy with what you've made. And then Cameron accuses him of being scared. And I'm like, Cameron, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> of course, I'm speaking from 2022. Right. Or, or, a, or a time and place in which you're listening to this episode. <laughs> but, but I get that whole concept, <laughs> that whole struggle with like, look, it can be more. It can be more. And sometimes you're like, no, it doesn't need to be more. It's good. It doesn't have to be amazing. It can be good, and that's okay.
1: Right. And it's the same in filmmaking uh, or in film editing. You know, when you're in post-production on a film, I think it was actually George Lucas who said that, you know, films are never finished. They're only abandoned, which is probably why he's constantly trying to tinker with Star Wars, because he had to abandon it at one point to get it out in 1977. And he, because he has the means and the money, he's continued to try to fix it. So that's the risk you run though, if you have the ability to do that. So Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's part of any creative project. There's always going to be, as you said, a point where you have to just say we're done. And, you know, there's that thing called Parkinson's law, which is essentially says that a project will expand or take up essentially as much time as you give it. So if you say you have a week to do it, it'll take a week. You'll find a way to finish it in a week. If you say you have six weeks, well, it's going to take six weeks. You'll put more time into it. You can always keep working on it. And it might be better. It might not. But the point being that you have to, at a certain point, you have to say, these are the constraints. This is when it needs to be due by or done by. And you have to kind of stick to that. So I think they're both right in a way. And they're both wrong. Cam's right in that she's trying to do something better. But I think Gordon is coming from a very good practical place as well in that, no, This is what we set out to achieve, and we actually did it. And that's a big deal. And as I think it's Joe later says, we can maybe we can do it in the next version. And that's, you know, Mark one, Mark two, just like any, you know, developmental, experimental project. You start with one, you test it, you put it through the paces because it might not be ready for this yet. You might want to work out the kinks. And then improve all of those features and add this personality in the second version. And I kind of understand that. If they had unlimited funds to burn and take as long as they needed, sure, maybe you could wow the world by un- you know unveiling this groundbreaking new computer that has a personality and does all these things all at once. But clearly, they don't have, unless I miss something, they never really got a lot of backing from anybody, did they? They're still mm-hmm. financially yep. strapped. And so they kind of need to get this out, start making some sales. <laughs> then they yes. can, you know,
0: reapproach improvements. And it's interesting that conversation that you mentioned with Joe is an expansion of this idea. Right. He tries to convince Joe about her idea. The dialogue here is is really great because it reveals so much about both sides of good design. Risks, implication, hardware in this case, and opinionated perspectives. Cameron says... Gordon is too scared to try anything new or different because he's traumatized from being a loser his entire life. I think you might be overstating that. Now, (laughs) that's completely emotionally driven. There's nothing factual about that statement. But I understand the sentiment behind it because as Cameron's vision is like, we can be greater, we can be greater, but you have to have a starting point to be greater. In other words, if there's nothing on the shelf right now, then if you fail or if you come up with something that's mediocre from good... Like if you deviate, what do you have? Your end product is actually less than what it was and nobody's even seen it. So their first instance of that product is mediocrity. And I think I want to say sometime in the episode later, Donna mentions that when talking to Joe, she says, listen, you got to give it a chance to breathe. Essentially, even Joe makes a great argument in his office, which is amazing. By the way, I love the set design (laughs) here. It's so comfortable. I want that office. It's huge with all the great leather couches and stuff. But he says, what are the hardware implications? Have you talked to, to Gordon about this? And that's when she makes that snarky line. But he's right. What are the hardware implications? Right. What will have to change? What will we have to do? And that's when he goes into talking about the fact that, hey, let's get through phase one, and then we can think about implementing your changes. And so what I think is great about this episode is that it doesn't side with either one of those places. Right. It lets Joe mull over the idea And it puts Gordon in a position to say, no, don't even think about it. He's like, no, I'm going to think about it because you need to be able to wrestle with an idea. You can't just dismiss it. Even if it's a crappy idea, you need to wrestle with it to determine that it's a crappy idea. That's how ideas either become great or stay on the cutting room floor because you think about them. You sit with them. I think that's one of the highlights of this episode for me because it really does encapsulate what great design is and what goes into it. It's like, how do you know when to stop? How do you know what is satisfactory for this moment? Because if you give a client something amazing to you, but they don't understand it, they're not going to think it's amazing. They're going to be confused. You need to give them baby food before you can feed them like real food. And then you can finally give them the steak.
1: It's the walk before you run, you know, analogy, you know. It really, exactly. They they haven't yet made a single computer or sold a single computer and Cam already wants it to be something so much more than what it currently is. And again, I go back to the timeline approach that if you have a timeline, if you have a deadline, that's going to be your biggest tool in right. deciding where the end is for now. And doesn't mean you can't have a new timeline and a new deadline for the next iteration. But that being said, I really liked Kim's analogy that she used of the sock puppet I thought that was Mm -hmm. a really great way for her to make her argument for the fact that it's just a cheap piece of cloth that she made with her father but her father used to give it personality and breathe life into it and that made made it special made her have a relationship with it and I think that was a really strong argument and I think Joe was hearing that in this scene. I think he understood what she meant by that. And again, it was more for him to mull over more for him to consider Gordon's making a snapshot judgment here of what, you know, this is stupid. This is dumb. We're not doing it. But (laughs) Joe is taking the more patient route, you know, where he's kind of sleeping on it. Kind of just, he's got to think about it. Got to consider it. And I I do like that about his character.
0: And, that creates that retention between not retention, but the tension again between Joe and Gordon. He says, I'm do whatever do. I want to do,
1: and you're going to do whatever I tell you to do, because that's the way this relationship works.
0: Joe has clearly played the boss card here, and that puts them at uh, sort of right odds after with each we other. thought they were, yeah, you know,
1: coming together, scheduling dinner plans, and now they're exactly. at, you know,
0: at each other's throats again.) <laughs> Yeah. And Gordon failed to uh, cancel dinner plans because Joe's still coming yeah. over. He's like, I don't care if we're fighting. I'm coming over with wine. You're cool. All right. <laughs> yeah. In between all this, there's a small moment with Donna and Hunt, her boss. They're having lunch. She's eating grapefruit for lunch. And at the end of the conversation, he asked her if she's willing to go on a business trip. And I'm like, Mm-mm, don't do that. Or <laughs> if you're going to do that, I guess do it because it's for business, right? It's not for business. I can tell. <laughs> So, as Han little... Solo said, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking
1: of Star Wars, let's yeah, do that exactly. <laughs> but she also gave away the secret—the secret that she gave uh, contributed yeah. to the new computer—and they mm-hmm. work for Texas Instruments, so this is technically a competitor. So yeah. I'm a little nervous that Hunt's going to use that information in some way to perhaps. Create their own product. I mean, we know in historically speaking, at this point in time, late 70s, early 80s, there was a ton of corporate espionage and just, you know, stealing ideas and calling them your own from everything. You know, Xerox came up with the first graphical user interface, but Apple then took that. And then Microsoft took that. You know, it's like constant taking and just sort of rebranding or, you know, putting a different. Spin on yeah. it, but it's really it's someone else's idea, and so yeah. I, I'm kind of getting a little anxious here, thinking that maybe uh, Hunt's gonna use that insider information for something. I don't know. You can't tell me. I know.
0: I'm not gonna tell you. Yes,
1: yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> it's such a short scene, though. It's like, why is it there if not for a seed that will pay off later? It could just be for the fact that there's some this business trip that they're going on, and that's it. That might be the only reason for the scene, but we'll see. He clearly think, likes her. That
0: it's yes, he does. Yeah, and if there's a seed, that's obvious. It's the grapefruit seed that she's eating. Right. So <laughs> anyway, back at Gordon's house, Gordon debriefs Donna about possibly redesigning the machine. Kids come in and ask him about the storm. This was a hilarious little throwaway line. He goes, "The hurricane can't reach us here. Houston might get walloped." <clears throat> and she slaps him <laughs> on the shoulder. And I think yeah. that's where her parents live. <laughs> I think. I think you might he be goes, right. Yeah. I th- <laughs> so I was like they're whatever. Sorry. Uh yeah. And then I love this part. Donna reminds Gordon about the cabbage patch doll and he goes, "Did I get cabbage?" Like she's trying to say it like yeah. it's, it, it's a great marriage thing. But she finishes that scene by saying, you know, Gordon's talking about Joe wanting to tweak it and she goes, "No, it's your machine, Gordon. Don't let him ruin it." And she's right. I think it's coming from a place of personal like frustration of her with Joe. Don't let him ruin it. But the fact is he's not the one maybe I take that back. He is Gordon's boss. And so he makes the final decision, but it's really Cameron that's pushing the idea. But the fact that she's planted that seed in his brain, I guess Donna has a right. But I like the fact that she's not only defending Gordon, but she's defending the product because she has a stake in that. So being able to get behind him or stand by him, I think is a fantastic sort of partnership moment with her.
1: And it's interesting, the idea of it being his machine. This is something that i I've encountered in filmmaking that depending on who you talk to on a film project, everyone considers it their movie. Whether it's the writer, it's like, oh, that's my movie. I wrote that. Or if it's the director, of course. Or the producer might be like, oh, that movie wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me. I, I made sure that it, you know, we got the funding or whatever. Or the cinematographer thinks it's all them. Like, oh, I shot that so beautifully. And that movie would have been nothing without me. Same thing with the editor sometimes. So, Everyone who's creatively involved in sort of a collaborative project, I think, feels like their contributions were invaluable and the most important, Absolutely. right? And yeah. so that's where I think this is interesting because I'm sure Cam thinks it's her machine. I'm sure Joe thinks it's his machine because he put this whole team together. It's everyone involved. In, in his own way, Boz might think it's his because if it wasn't for Cardiff Electric, his company, none of this would be happening. So everyone has their own sort of point of view as to whose machine it is. When in reality, it's all of theirs. They all have come together. And without every one of them, they wouldn't be where
0: they are right now. I think it's one of two people's. I think it's Nathan Cardiff's because he's not in this episode. (laughs) I also think it's Stan. Where is Stan? This episode, I got scared. Where's Stan? Is he coming back? I hope he's coming back. did you recast Stan? Because I don't see Stan. I'm afraid that Stan has moved to Hawkins, Indiana, and is now taking over the science teacher <laughs> position. Yeah. Maybe they sent him on a, a vacation to uh, Cincinnati. Like Cincinnati, because that's where you go on vacation to <laughs> yeah. decompress a little bit. That's what
1: they They have like a, a room there in a hotel that they just keep on, you know,
0: a decompression you know, room.
1: Yeah, for, <laughs> Uh, by the way, I just this week found that the actor that plays him, Randy Havens, is on Twitter and I followed him. It's at Mr. Randy Havens. Oh, that's so if great. you wanna check him out, he's got a decent sized following for uh an actor of just two shows that I'm aware of.
0: <laughs> Man, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet at him here in a little bit and be like, dude, love the handlebar mustache. Yeah why did you move to Hawkins? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> tell us how that happened. Maybe anyway. we can get
1: confirmation if, if his, that character has a twin brother at oh the gosh, same time yes. who teaches science
0: at uh, Hawkins Such Middle a, School. Yeah, Hawkins Middle. Yeah, don't give yeah. him too much credit. It's Hawkins no. Middle School, <laughs> head of the AV club, head of the AV. That's club. right. Anyway, the uh, the episode takes us back to Cameron's house, and I've noticed this in recent episodes. But have you noticed that Cameron doesn't type with all her fingers? She like types with her. Yeah, her independent yeah. fingers. And I wonder if that's Cameron doing that or if that's actually Mackenzie Davis. I'd like to ask her that question. Was that something that she does? Mackenzie does? Or did she think that Cameron needs to have that kind of mannerism with her with her fingers where she doesn't type with all you of her fingers? Just the I two. kind of
1: I kind of take it as a character, like an acting choice that she considers Cam to be kind of a self-taught individual that maybe she never took a typing class. She never learned to do Good things point. the quote-unquote right way, like using the home keys like you would learn in a typing course, so that she's just doing it the way she does it because that's how she learned, and she's never taken the time to kind of unlearn her habits. But I, uh, I also just want to mention that I forgot how loud and kind of clicky those old giant keyboards were. Like They're so oh, yeah. deep and so mm-hmm. loud compared to like the much thinner <laughs> keys of today. Yeah.
0: They're like a softer Gosh. version of a typewriter. It's yeah. Just, yeah, like they're it's really sick. Like they're really deep, those those keys. They go yeah. down so far. Uh, I would take a keyboarding class in high school yeah. with like 12 of these computers, and we were all trying to do like what's the fastest you can type. And it was just like <laughs> so I was like, stop, I can't do this. I it's can type so faster loud. if nobody else was in here. <laughs> yeah, it was so bad. The end of the scene, camera is actually stuck like she was before. Uh, we move quickly to Joe's apartment the next day. Yes, it is the next day because we get that great, another establishing shot. I love that they're repeating some of these shots to sort of right. give us familiarity, but to also show us variants of change here. Mm-hmm. He's not happy with his wardrobe uh, and dissatisfied. And again, I think this is just every day he's getting worn down a little bit by like thinking about what Cameron's saying. And no, she's raining. getting
1: under his skin basically and like yeah. making him start to question who is he on the outside who what is he projecting
0: yeah i also like the fact that it's raining obviously because the hurricane is is coming but i just like this kind of rain like where it's sort of just all over like the sheets city. of rain hitting sheets the windows of, yeah.
1: yeah this really
0: yeah i have a window outside my office and when it's overcast and rainy i love it because i have two lamps that i I turn on anyway. I don't turn on my fluorescence. And because it's so dark, it just increases the mood of my office. Like It makes it very cozy. Yeah. And I think that we talked about this in episodes past about the lighting is very cold, like the cool colors versus the warm colors of like Gordon's house. And you attributed that partly to just the, the nature of the furniture. It's very browns and things like that. But I think that there's a purpose to Joe's apartment being in that kind of hue, in those cooler colors, to create that sense of disconnect and coldness, as opposed to right. Gordon's house that's more like it's a family unit. It's more warm color. and
1: inviting. Yeah. yeah. Whereas even with their problems. The sterile yeah. environment, this kind of. Yeah, that's a great way to describe uh, it, very sterile. Yeah.
0: And uh, then we go back to Cameron's house, and now she's on a roll with whatever she's working on. And now I made the connection she needs dudes to have sex with in order to get unstuck whether it's Joe or apparently rockstar dude or amp right. flame guy
1: <laughs> yeah cuz she yeah like that night before when she gets when she just gets so frustrated and is like throwing things across the room she just goes into mm-hmm. the hall of their uh, house or whatever they're in and uh, she just looks at that guy Without a shirt on, and just that her expression is <laughs> priceless. Like you kind of, you kind of knew what was going to happen, but you weren't sure. And then now right. it's confirmed. And yeah. uh, of course Yo-Yo, who was the third roommate. I'm assuming it's just the three of them. But he, of like course, it. comes in and catches Rock Star Boy in in her bed, and he seemed a little like, what? annoyed by what? it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think you're yeah. right. I think he's into her a little bit. And of course, she'll probably never be into him because he's not, you know, he's not muscular. He's her muscular ducky, That's what he is. He's yeah. her ducky. <laughs> exactly. Or her yo-yo, at this point. <laughs> and yo-yo will just keep programming games for her, trying to impress her, and she'll never Pining catch on. Pining for her electronically yeah. is what he's going to be doing. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Back at Cardiff, Gordon finds out that Lev was retasked with OS expansion per Cameron, who is in charge of software. Gordon, however... Is in charge of stopping, quote, idiotic things from happening. And you can trust me, I'm not screwing the product manager to get my way. Oops. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, that's it's probably so... going to come back to haunt him at some point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very, <Absolutely>. Relatively
0: soon. <laughs> yeah. Gordon rushes out because he knows he has to get that Cabbage Patch doll. So he tasks Debbie, yes savior of the administrative world, he tasked her to find a toy store nearby. I mean, I'm like, just Google it. Oh, wait, never mind. You can't do that. It's it's 1983 or 84. Yeah. Good old possible. yellow pages. Ooh, I hated the yellow pages.
1: <laughs> I just, yeah. Watching, it made me remember, and also just think about the fact that Man, to make something of that size, that thickness, to print it, the amount of paper, the, the cost to store them and ship them and deliver them to everybody's homes. Like, if you're a mailman carrying those, then it's horrible. <laughs> You've got to carry these things. You can't carry more than five of those at a time before you go back to the truck to get more. It's just this is where things like Google have really made the world an easier place. Absolutely. And, uh, same thing with movie prints. They used to have to mail mm. like reels of film, like, thousands of them all over the world to theaters. And now it's like, nope, you just download uh, the Thumb file. Drive. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's hard to believe the amount of money and time and, and space and energy that had to go into something as, sim- as simple as, you know, getting people a, a phone book. Yeah.
0: Then we moved to Play World where my suspicions of the the subplot emulating <laughs> Jingle All the Way are confirmed <laughs> right. cuz Gordon gets scammed by trying to get the cabbage patch doll and I And I saw
1: this coming, coming but yet like yeah. it still hurt watching it. I was like no mm-hmm.
0: don't no
1: just stop. Yeah. The guy was good though, the actor who portrayed yeah. the scammer. He had a whole shtick worked out and he was just ready to pounce, you know, on, yeah. on the next customer. But as soon as he peeled out in his car, I was like, "Nope, nope, nope." You know, he he was so fast, yeah. like jumping at his key. He just was getting out of there. Uh, horrible. Of course, it was a wrapped box of nothing.
0: It was. It was a wrapped box. Of, I think there's. Bo- I think there's rocks in it. Because uh, yeah, it had or, some weight to it. Yeah. But stuff like this, to be honest, just gives me anxiety watching this stuff in movies. I <laughs> confess that in planes, trains, and automobiles, my anxiety literally goes up a little bit because of what happens to Steve Martin's character. Like, I'm not trying to spoil things, but he just goes down this path of like, oh my gosh. And yes, there's definitely resolution at the end. It's it's fun. It's a happy ending. And it's meaningful. I mean, it, it was one of the most surprising, meaningful endings of the movie I thought it was great. But those journeys and getting scammed, it just makes my heart sad. I, know. Here's, what I here's how I justify it how I resolved that in my heart. He gave the guy $80, but then he got his $80 worth by getting two Cabbage Patch dolls. By (laughs) vandalizing his Toy story, yes. But that's what happens in my head. This is, it's so dumb. But there's a part of me that's like, I hate when that happens. Like in Home Alone, when when Kevin's mom is giving away all her stuff to that old couple to get a plane ticket, I tell myself that because they don't show them taking all that stuff and because she still had her earrings, that her story about needing to get home to her son was enough for them to just exchange tickets, that they didn't have yeah. to take anything else. And I'm like, that's how I resolve it. It probably didn't happen that way. But it, I don't know what it is, but it just makes me anxious and it makes me feel so bad. And I think it has to do with like, you're losing all this money and right, these right. possessions and stuff. And maybe it just speaks to my you know, materialism.
1: No, I, I mean, I think we're all scared of something like this happening to us. And, and we see somebody else, if we're witness to somebody else, getting scammed or getting taken advantage of it's just yeah it's i think they're getting the intentional response that they want from us this is also i think important because it's driving him further down a path that we'll see shortly towards the end of this episode like this is just one more step towards him doing what he does at the end maybe he wouldn't have done it if he hadn't been scammed out of eighty dollars but it kind of made him that much more desperate to get those dolls for
0: his daughter. The next two scenes are at Cardiff and Cameron asks Yo-Yo where he's at with the module to which he says, figure out what you want us to do and we'll do it because he's clearly frustrated. They keep getting tasked to do different things based off of the individuals who are talking to them. And then she kind of attempts to lay the hammer down by saying, I'm your boss. She calls the programmers together and gives them the spiel. And then one of them, it's not Yo-Yo. I can't remember the other kid's name. Um, flying jay or banana man or i don't know it's some i don't know if he has a nickname or not but i forget <laughs> yeah i don't remember he basically calls her out he said are you sleeping with joe mcmillan and <laughs> she's speechless wow. yeah yeah, yeah. Like she how really do, is how do you respond to that well we find out right next door <laughs> in the next scene yeah gordon is frantically looking for a store for cabbage patch dolls he tears out a page of the phone book marty mcfly style Yes, Cameron grabs him (laughs) this is so great I gotta wonder if Scoot McNary and Mackenzie Davis had some fun with this because this was this was just delightful Uh, she grabs him kisses him and tells him quote you were incredible last night (laughs) 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 and the smile on Bosworth's face is so epic it's like (laughs) what and
1: all the guys all the guys in the room are just kind of have this half smile on their face like oh yeah like they're just like such doofuses but Again, she created that situation. That's what she Mm -hmm. wanted to happen. That was her
0: revenge. And then back at Gordon's house, we get a first look at the living room. I hadn't seen that before. And this is a somewhat awkward moment here with Donna and Joe and one of her kids on Joe's leg, which clearly, I don't know if it's bothering him, but he's not letting on that it does. (laughs) I have to say,
1: I like laughed out loud when she like grabbed his leg and just says, hi, you know, I was like... (laughs) <laughs> just really like unexpected and i thought very funny but yeah it yeah. there's that one moment too where donna asks him one question from across the room and then after he answers she just kind of looks like left and right and doesn't know what to do and she just kind of walks out of the room and, like it's so awkward <laughs> she's just there's like yeah nothing else to be said they have no no more yeah. you know no more uh sort of small talk to be made just yeah. she just exits
0: <laughs> Yeah, we're done. All right. I'm yeah. going to go check on the meat. <laughs> yeah. And then back at Cardiff, we're in the basement. Bosworth invites Cameron up for a drink in his office for a Cardiff special, <laughs> as, he, as he calls it. Yeah. I like doing Bosworth impressions. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to do that more if I can. Oh, <laughs> <like> you too. <laughs> <laughs> and then back at Gordon's house. Uh, Donna knows what Gordon's doing because Joe says, where's Where's Joe? Or "Or where's Gordon? She's like, he's probably out looking for a cabbage patch doll. Okay, so this is the only deviation from from Jingle All the Way because Mom clearly knows what Dad's doing, and she's right. like, it's cool. Whatever, you're good. <laughs> yeah, so
1: in a way, with the Jingle All the Way analogy, in a way, Joe is like Phil Hartman's character in uh-huh. that movie. you know, yes. Not quite hitting on donna but yet you know they're together while he's off searching for the doll
0: yeah and i picked up a little i guess part of me wanted to think that he was trying to connect intimately with donna but then i had to step back and go no i don't think that's him i think he's
1: no he's not interested in her that way i don't think i think he is trying to make the best of an awkward situation uh we find out some more information too we find out that he's only 35 one of uh their daughters says, How old are you? And uh, she he says thirty-five yeah. and I and I'm just thinking, Wow, that's young. <laughs> I feel mm-hmm. so old now, almost forty-five. <laughs> I'm like, This guy's thirty-five you know, I always think like, Oh, he's so
0: much older than me. He's so professional. Yeah. No, he's it's the he's suit. younger. It's the suit. Yeah. <laughs> Joe <laughs> offers to build a fort for the kids. This was very different. I, I was very yeah. kind of taken aback when I saw this the first time. And I'm not sure if Donna's impressed. What's interesting is that he doesn't stay down there with them. He says, Let's build no. a fort, goes under there, and then comes out and he's like, All right, they're distracted. Let's step back and I watch think them play.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's what she was impressed by, perhaps, if anything, is that he was able to do what he does, which is sort of distract or get them kind of like a magician, you know. He, that's he a just, great point. He, he's able to make get people interested in something else so that he can then sit back and have a grown-up conversation with Donna, which they do. Yeah,
0: I like that conversation. They're debating yeah. the value of what is and what could be. And I can't remember, I think she says it. She says, it's easy to lose sight of what's great when it's right in front of you. And that kind of echoes back to what we talked about, about a product. When yeah. is done, done. When do we ship this off and make it? This is what we're doing for at least this phase of it. It's it's neat to see these intellectual sort of skirting around the same idea. They're all trying to get to the same place, but maybe from different angles. And so I like right. that we have different voices speaking into that, but they're all pointing to the same general area.
1: Right, right. And I think she's very convincing here as well. I think I really liked her soft-spoken approach to almost flattering him as opposed to sort of debating him over the subject or just saying no like Gordon did. He's not the kind of person that responds to no but I think if you just speak to him and if you share ideas with him he's receptive to them. He's willing to mull them over or consider them but he doesn't just want to be told what to do or told what not to do.
0: Right. And she reinforces that By saying, you can believe in your vision and what you've created. She really does sort of reinforce what he is doing. It's not in contrast to what Gordon's doing. It needs to be in unison with, and it can be. It can be both. It can be now and later. It's the already and the not yet approach to the product itself and really to the vision that all this stuff can happen. It just needs to happen in certain timestamps. I love her voice, not her actual voice, I mean, Carrie Bechet's got a great voice, but (laughs) I like that she has a voice of reason as, as you said, it's very, the way she delivers, it's very tender. It's very much like a conscience that is able to speak into what I think Joe needs. He needs to be not told, but he needs to be spoken to in a way where he can understand and maybe able to process this thing that he's mulling over with Cameron. Cause I mean, he's got a lot on his shoulders in this episode, I mean, he's been told he's just a suit I I really do believe he's slowly sort of migrating away from that, trying new things, trying to get out of that shell. These characters like Donna, I think it has to be a woman. I think Mm -hmm. her softness as a woman is what can speak to him to help sort of take some of that armor off and help speak into his heart what he needs to hear, which is that he has a good vision. It just needs to be cultivated and you need to believe in it. It just needs to be believed in and executed at a specific time
1: right right and it's like with the other male characters whether it's Bosworth or Gordon it's like he needs to be the alpha he has to be in charge and with Cameron and here with Donna he's he's certainly putting his guard down a little bit he's willing to at least let some dissenting points of view come into the into his brain
0: <laughs> yeah so i look at i look at how that scene ends and how it bleeds into Bosworth's office. You've got this other pairing, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, Cameron and Bosworth talking. Cameron says, I want to build a computer for you. I want to build something that makes people fall in love. And I really like that sentiment. It's a great mm-hmm. reveal about how Cameron fell in love by joining the computer club. So she was not born with two fingers on a keyboard, <laughs> like we think. Right, right. That she really does... It, she acquired this, she acquired this love because she learned basic and it was quote, like finding water in the middle of the desert. I finally knew how to talk to something. I finally had the right language. Man, that's so romantic. I love mm-hmm. that set of lines because it's like when you when you finally are able to talk to someone or something and they understand where the first thing that comes to mind is my my dog and I tell her to sit and she sits I tell her to lay down and she lay down and it's a command yes she doesn't understand conceptually what sit means she hears the sound sit and she knows that from pavlovian response she sits down at her bottom or when i say belly she rolls over and lets me rub her belly and she gets a pavlovian response from that it's more than that it's more than just Oh, I understand you. There's meaning behind it with Cameron in that she's able to actually understand the beauty of the language of code. There is beauty behind that. I mean, I'm not much of a coder anymore, but when I was into it, there is a beauty to it. And I think that when Donna says that about her, it's like a symphony and it's beautifully written. I think that that's what we get revealed here with her and Boz is that that's, that's kind of how she feels when she writes code and why she wants it to be beautiful, because it's not just saying I like cheese or I go to store. It's, it's poetry. (laughs) Yeah. It's not about a subject and a verb and an action and a preposition. It really is about meaning and evokes an emotion. And that's why I think she says, I want to build something that makes people fall in love. And I, I love the vision behind that.
1: Yeah. And I think the backstory is great too, as you mentioned, how she fell in love in a computer club, and that through computers, perhaps, she kind of found her people, you know, the, where she belonged, and that the other people in the computer club were probably her friends, but they spoke the language of coding together. That's what they shared. That's what bonded them. And so I think even when we first meet her in this series, she's still kind of an outsider, but I think she When she is with other coders, she's as close as you're going to get to being around people that she actually can bond with or connect with, because that's their connection.
0: Right. Before the scene ends, Boz gives her some good advice. He tells her to be careful about her theatrics, telling her to watch out, because people want her to fail due to her being the future. Mm -hmm. And I like that he doesn't say the future of Cardiff, the future of computing, but the future it leaves it very ambiguous because it yeah. allows us to go. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that she's the future of what a computer could be or the internet? Is she going to found the internet? Is it not going to be uh, Al Gore? Uh, you know, what's what's it going to? She's going to actually
1: become be? the, ter- the Terminator from Der- Terminator oh, Dark that's Fate.
0: Right? Yeah, we we already determined that. So sorry.
1: <laughs> no, that's no. What, but you're the future. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Instead of you're the future. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, though, this is a different side of Bosworth that I really liked. He's sort of somewhat avuncular here. He's very much trying to show her, first of all, that he knows enough about the computer business to understand that she is the future. He's not that dumb. He's not as the surface kind of guy that he sometimes portrays is not really who he is, that he knows more under the surface. And we've seen that. Through various episodes, where he's been trying to understand code, staying at work late at night, sleeping on his couch in his office because he's he's trying to learn. So he's clearly knowledgeable enough to understand that even if he can't code, even he can't be if he's not an engineer, he understands that she has something special, and that what she has will be the future, and that almost nobody else that's working there is showing those signs of forward thinking the way she is. I like this.
0: Yeah, me too. Back at Gordon's house, we've got a leaky roof that leads to more conversation between Joe and Donna. I think they've kind of started a cordial relationship over leaky dinners and pre-dinners or wherever they're at with that. The kids start getting scared of the of the storm, and Joe gives the kids flashlights to keep the storm at bay. Yet another cool little fatherly moment. or yeah. hurricane zappers, <laughs> he calls them. Yeah, and I look at Joe, and I think he with these kids is sort of surprising in the way that I look at Michael Scott from The Office and how he is with kids. Like there are two or three episodes that really soften up Michael Scott, round him out as a character. And there's a lot of them. I mean, there's definitely some growth and that's a whole different podcast that you can listen to from other people that aren't us. Right. But I think that There are specific episodes where Steve Carell, I believe, just loves children, and he wanted to see that on full display, and I think they took advantage of that, and the fact that the way he interacts with children is so fantastic. Joe does the same thing here, because I think when you see a man with children who acts and plays and things like that, it automatically softens his character, softens a character for you. Like, I don't think pedophile, I don't think anything gross like that. I think, oh, wow, Joe's got a soft side. Joe's got something that is beyond just the suit. And again, I think this is more expansion of him softening up. I don't think he's doing this to impress Donna. I don't think he's doing it to try to exercise demons. I think this is part of his character that we just didn't know before. Right.
1: He's just not put in situations like this very often. And because of the hurricane and because of of the situation where they're waiting for Gordon to come home, he's there whether he likes it or not. So yeah, he's got to come up with something to pass the time with, and he's got two young girls who are who are frightened, so he makes up a pretty decent story of how they can scare the storm away with flashlights.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. And where's Gordon? Oh, yeah, he's in the rain. He finds a the closed toy store, darn it, uh, but that doesn't deter him. He breaks the window, as we mentioned before. He gets the Cabbage Patch dolls. And he goes through a rainy downtown to discover someone has been struck by lightning. This was the weirdest part of the episode. And I don't want to say it felt out of place, but it made me question what metaphorically is going on here. (laughs) I wish that I knew. I think the only thing I can think of is that this is just furthering Gordon's self-awareness that he just can't be enough. He's a failure. And, but I don't know, this feels a little bit overdone if that's the case, because I don't think he is. I think. I don't know what this means, so maybe you can shed some light on this kind yeah, of whole sequence. I'm not, sequence. I just, I'm not I don't sure know.
1: either. Uh, although I think that it was uh, a downed power line that may have electrocuted somebody. Uh, that's sort of what I took away from it, because he he's sort of staring at at the telephone pole that hit the you know the the puddles of water on the ground. Anyway, I I don't know what this is other than to show that he doesn't go to aid this person, and maybe he can't. Maybe because of the hurricane. Maybe because it's a live wire on the water that he would just you know kill himself too but he just decides to take his cabbage patch kids and drive home like nothing happened so i i'm not quite sure what they're getting at here i think i understand the fact that he steals the cabbage patch dolls it's showing the lengths that people will go to fix their own mistakes he clearly forgot to look for the doll and tried everything and then he got scammed and he -hmm. couldn't come home without one so Hey, there's a hurricane. No one's going to blame me. They're going to think the window broke from the hurricane. They probably have hurricane insurance and so who's the, who's the, you know, the wiser. You know, there's no security cameras back then, I don't think. At least not yeah. to the extent that we have today.
0: Two observations. One, you got to dry up those cabbage patch dolls. They're soaked. Uh, because it just totally. walks in the you Yeah, totally <laughs> yeah. so. And two, if you're going to steal the Cabbage Patch dolls, just steal the horses that they were on, too. Those were kind of cool, too. And the cool sign behind them. Yeah, yeah just take like the whole thing. I mean, nobody's going to know. No, like you said, no security cameras, hurricanes, you know, whatever. So just yeah. take advantage of everything. So
1: they just all blew away, you know? Exactly. Just Only those toys. <laughs> right. All the other toys are sitting there exactly where they were. But somehow, <laughs> who would do such a thing? <laughs> and is this for a birthday or what? It's not Christmas time yet, right? No, I don't no, no. think It's for a birthday. It's, That's it's what I okay. Joni's, yeah. Joni's birthday,
0: I think. Right. Which we never get to see, by the way. Because no, again, maybe... this whole thing takes place in one night. But right. yeah, I, I'm assuming Joni has a good birthday. We haven't seen the episodes following this. So we don't know right. if Joni maybe. has a soggy birthday or a, or a good one or whatever. Maybe his daughter's like,
1: hey, dad, where's the box? Where's the packaging? <laughs> I like to keep my, my cabbage Trash dolls in their original packaging for collecting In condition Yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, I already opened it for you, honey. Yeah. Threw it you away. You should be thanking me. You should be thanking
0: me. And I washed them. That's why they're wet. Yeah, exactly. See how clean they are? Don't care that they smell like dog or dead person, whatever. Anyway, we're back at Gordon's house and the storm's getting stronger. Joe offers to go outside with the flashlights uh, to push it away. And I think it's interesting that Joe is surprised that the girls name their flashlights. So without knowing what's happening next, I think that in this moment, he gets what Cameron's saying that when you create life from inanimate objects, there's a sense of personality and intimacy that come from doing that because you're actually creating value in those things. When you name a flashlight, something you're, are giving it power <laughs> not just like lighting power but actual personal power there and i think right. that kind of gets him to understand what cameron's talking about
1: yeah the, these two pieces of plastic with batteries in them are actually have a relationship with their owners with these two young right. girls and right. they that they are imbued with humanity they have names they they hold them next to them at night probably when they're you know scared of the dark like there's they have a purpose beyond just their functionality. And I think that's what yeah. you said. That's what Cam wants this computer to become.
0: And then Joe goes outside, does his best Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption. Love that kind of top-down shot with the rain. Totally. He does this insane pantomime, like yeah. he's fighting the storm. I, I'd like to think that this is Lee Pace making this up. This isn't choreographed by someone on set that... He's kind of like an air traffic
1: controller, you know, trying to get the plane to to land, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But doing like modern dance with it. So it's an air traffic controller on, so you think you can dance, that kind of thing. (laughs) And then the storm dies down. I guess we can theorize that Joe stopped it with those magical moves and flashlights. Gordon gets home. And I wonder, just sort of uh, rhetorically, what's going through Gordon's mind here? Does he think that something's happened with Joe? And Donna, you know, Joe's got this, I don't know if his shirt's off, but he's definitely wet and things are, yeah, they're they're all having a good yeah. time. And Gordon's like, I've been out in the storm <laughs> getting cabbage patch dolls and seeing <laughs> electrocuted people. What yeah. are you doing in my house? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's been through quite a bit. You know, he got scammed. He saw someone get killed. He broke into a toy store and stole <laughs> dolls. He's been driving through probably the worst hurricane he's ever driven through probably. and then he finds joe in his home with his wife and it's all a little a little strange a little suspicious so yeah it's as gordon likes to say he's having a day what does he say I'm I'm having kind of, another of a day. day yeah he's, he's having another three day. kind of days yeah kind of days <laughs> can't catch a break <laughs> gordon. Kind of, yeah i'm having kind of a day i'm kind of
0: having a life so, right now is what you're having yeah. Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah complete with just wet cabbage patch dolls and semi-strangers in your house with your wife So right anyway Joe leaves and goes over to Cameron's house I, I really like the way the episode ended yeah and at the same time I have questions not like stranger things questions but just motive questions he sure goes to her house she's obviously still pissed at him and he says do you have anybody What are you talking about? You got stuck in the hurricane. Do you have anybody you would call? I don't. Show me what you've been working on. And this, I think, is the first time that Cameron smiles at him in like four years, it seems like. Right. (laughs) She's not mad at him. Right, And she's excited to show him what she's been working on, a computer that asks you questions, a computer that is beginning to have a soul. And this is where Joe tells Cameron what I believe is the real story. It makes sense, this real story about how he got the scars, where his mom, who had been high as a kite, let go of him from the top of a roof, and he spent two years in a hospital because he landed on a fence. Wow. I mean, that's, that's brutal. And that yeah. At the same time, that makes complete sense on how those scars actually came to be. And also makes sense why he probably doesn't want to talk about
1: it because you know he has to bring up and think about this relationship with his mother that clearly was not good. By lying about it, he doesn't have to actually relive that. He, he can
0: just make yeah. up some
1: other story that he's unemotional about.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so I think this is what you speak to about if he doesn't have to talk about it, he doesn't have to relive it. I think that there are some therapeutic methods that sort of allow a person to exercise their demons by in some ways reliving a traumatic event so that they can take hold of it. Almost like you confront your demons, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he does that here. I think he, he gets vulnerable for sure, but there's nothing like incredibly like life changing with him. He does get emotional And because of that, I think it's very attractive to her. And then they start having not just meaningless sex, but they really do become intimate in that moment. And the episode ends with him saying, Cameron, this is really good. And I want to believe that about Joe. I want to believe that this relationship is really good, that Joe is starting to sort of soften up to change, but I'm left in a good way wondering what is going to happen next. So What's the aftermath of everything that Gordon's gone through in looking for the Cabbage Patch doll? Not, is he going to give it to his daughter? What's going to happen with the the police or anything? But really, what is he learning from this? Are Joe and Cameron going to be, obviously they're going to be a couple, but what does that mean for their working relationship? Are they now going to be sort of a power couple? Is that going to happen? What's happening with Donna and her relationship with Joe? Nothing romantic necessarily, but how is that going to affect how she talks to Gordon. I mean, all these things. And I think that's what makes this episode so interesting because it's sort of a pivot point where I don't know what's going to happen with the project. I don't know who's going to be in charge, what they're going to focus on, how the last four episodes are really going to resolve where they get from here to maybe prototype.
1: Right. Yeah. It's like the first five episodes all built to this episode. And now this episode, as you said, kind of pivots everything in a, slightly new direction for the rest of the season? Those are all great questions, and I don't know the answer to any of them because I have never seen this show before. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. But I did like this ending. I agree with you, and I really liked (laughs) liked how he types in his name on the computer when she's showing to him, and he types in his full name, and it doesn't work. And she's, she kind of jokes. She's like, it it only works with first names. And <laughs> uh, and then I loved his reaction when it says, like, hello, Joe. You know, it doesn't say this, but he reads it. Although I kind of pictured Hal 9000 saying, hello, Joe, what would you like to do today? You know, it's kind of yeah. where my, my head was. But, but I, you could see it click in Joe's head as soon as he saw, oh, I can just type what I want to do. I want to do this and it will just take me to that. I don't have to actually go there myself. It knows yeah. how to open up what I need to do. It's kind of a game changer. So I mm-hmm. think he's finally understanding more than ever now what Cam's been trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So great ending. Great episode.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just loving it. Yeah. And that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Adam, what is coming up next for us? Uh, episode seven, uh, which is entitled giant and it's directed by
1: John Amiel. And he directed some big budget Hollywood films, uh, that you may have heard of Summersby copycat entrapment with Sean Connery. He Ooh, directed, I the, like that movie, the core. You ever see the core? I didn't and see the core. They? Yeah. It's not really that great, but uh it's sort of the most ridiculous concept ever it actually got a lot of ridicule from the scientific community because it they were just like yeah this is ridiculous you can't tunnel your way to the center of the earth to restart the core with a nuclear bomb that's the premise (laughs) of the movie but if you want to laugh it's a funny movie to to laugh at i saw it in on a trip once in a hotel room otherwise i probably never would have seen it was your
0: trip to the core was it to the core of the
1: earth? No, it was actually Chicago. It was a work trip. And <laughs> wow. it was Not one of those fun. things where, you know, it was like on in the hotel room. And so I just, yeah, I went for it. But anyway, wow. so John Emile directed those and other movies. He's directing the, the next episode entitled Giant. So that's what we're up for next. Will Andre the Giant show up? Maybe he will. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I keep thinking Did when I see Giant, dead. I think of, uh, my first thought was the, uh, you know, the James Dean film, Giant, but uh, oh, I don't, I I don't think it has any connection to that <laughs> at all. Probably not, but I yeah. think that's
0: kind of cool. I've not seen that yeah. really.
1: one of James Dean's three films that he made. Oh.
0: That's it. So, so were the first two small and medium and then giant? Nah. <laughs>
1: gotta see those <laughs> first. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta, yeah.
0: <laughs> to make sense of giant, you gotta see small and medium.
1: See the giant trilogy. <laughs> 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 yeah watch <laughs> oh them in gosh. order <laughs> exactly or it won't make sense <laughs> <laughs> it's medium oh. large giant it's like uh oh i remember one time going to the movie theater and i said i'll you know have a small small popcorn so no we don't have small we have medium large and x and jumbo i was like well then the medium is your small like the, <laughs> it, you're just renaming them it just give me the smallest size that you sell. And they're, and they're like, so you want a medium? I said, I want the smallest size. I don't care what you call it. I got very upset.
0: You're that guy, aren't you? You're yeah. that guy. I'm the guy sitting behind you going, dude, just get your freaking popcorn. I need my jujubes.
1: I just don't understand the market. I understand it. I understand that they are trying to make it seem like you're getting more for your money by calling it a medium but it's still in the spectrum of sizes. It's your small size and your large size, and there's one in the middle. So the one in the middle is your medium size, whether you call it large or medium.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is why I don't buy stuff at the movie theaters because they're logically flawed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam, and we are out of here.